The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. So imagine getting a text message one day, and you look at your phone and it's from Jesus. Just simply asking you, hey, you want, you want to meet tomorrow and, and talk over some coffee? I mean, how would you feel? What thoughts would be going through your mind? Would you feel excitement over that chance to, to finally see your best friend, your savior, your, your source of comfort, your, your king, your creator? Or would you feel a, a little sense of dread because you realize, ooh, Jesus wants to have a meeting? Because anytime anybody asks me for a meeting, it can go one of two ways. It can be pretty good or it can be pretty bad. Maybe you'd be tempted to alter your routine for the rest of the day. Like, oh, I'm going to do a diva right now. I'm going to read a whole chapter, not just a verse. That way I've got something to talk about tomorrow and, and Jesus is happy with me. And so you're going to do a diva before you go to sleep. If you go to sleep, your anxiety might be you know, up enough. Or, or maybe you're going to have a really special prayer time. That way when you see Jesus the next day, you can be like, hey, I was talking with you last night. This is pretty cool because I mean, we're close like that and it's good to see you in person. I mean, would you alter your schedule uh, maybe you pray, make, make sure things are okay with you and God, and rack your mind and figure out, okay, well, what have I done this week that I'm not to, I mean, would you do that, or would you be too nervous to talk to God in anticipation of your next day meeting with Jesus? And so the next day rolls around, and you go into the coffee shop, and we'll just say it's Mudhouse, to throw a little plug in for Mudhouse here in Crozet. And so you open the door to Mudhouse, and as soon as you do, you recognize Jesus is kind of sitting over there in the corner, and you know, he waves at you, and and you stall a little bit, and you decide that you want to order you know, two cups of coffee and make them the complicated ones so that you don't have to go to Jesus just yet because you're a little nervous. This is Jesus we're talking about. And so you get your cup, and you go over to the corner, and Jesus greets you, and maybe there's an awkward hug because you're just really still not sure how this is going to go down, and, and it's just really awkward because he's refusing to break eye contact with you, and so you sit down, and you chit-chat a little bit, you talk about the weather, and you don't want to complain about the heat too much because, well, he is, after all, the creator of the universe. And so you make small talk with him, and finally he asks you the question. He says, how are you doing? How are things going? Now, your response could be variable. It could be a variety of things. It could be, Jesus, things are great. You're my Savior. I'm your brother in you. Uh, your father is my father. Life is good. Let's talk about the awesome things that I'm seeing you do among us. It could be that response. Or it could be, it, it could be, Jesus, why? Why? could be that, like today in the middle of setup, somebody throws a bundle of bad news at you that just wrecks your day, and all you want to know is, Jesus, why do you let these things happen? That could be a conversation. I'm looking around, and I know that there are so many of you that have the grounds to ask that question. Jesus, why cancer? Why death? Why divorce? Why all of this stuff? And so it could be that. But either of those responses kind of indicate something of an intimate relationship, right? I mean, you're not going to pour your heart out to someone that you feel is a stranger. You're not going to have a, a great conversation with somebody that you don't feel like you're close enough to to talk about how awesome things are with you. And so I'm not a psychic. I don't know what your response to that question would be. But I do know that your grasp of the new covenant, by and large, is going to drive that response. And this is what I mean by that. I mean, under the Old Covenant, 
our relationship with God, the way that we relate to God, the way that God views us, by and large, was wrapped up in our performance. Our ability to take the things that God said do and do those and take the things that God says don't do and don't do those. And when we fail, there are consequences. Unless God is super gracious that day and says, well, you know what, you deserve these things, but I'm going to exercise some mercy. So the problem with that is this. As long as we live within the system of the Old Covenant, as long as we live in this body of flesh, as long as we are not regenerate, as long as we are compelled by the impulses of our flesh, of our sinful nature, then we're never going to live righteously. We're never going to have a lifestyle that lets us have that connectivity with God. He won't tolerate sin. And so under the stipulations of the old covenant, if we're still clinging to that mentality, then we're not going to feel like we have a closeness closeness with Christ. And so when he asks us how we're doing, our answer would be something like, uh, I'm doing good, but I'm busy. You know, I'm, I'm not you, Jesus. And so, yeah, I've been falling behind in my quiet time, and, but I had a really good one last month, or, or I know I need to pray more, and I know that I've been doing this stuff, and I shouldn't be doing it, and I know that I'm not doing this, but I really, I mean, everything that we would respond with would be with a sense of guilt and a sense of shame and a sense that, that since we're not Jesus, then he's going to be disappointed with us. But that is old covenant thinking, isn't it? Under the old covenant, what was the natural response when man faced God intimately? It was fear, right? Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so fear was the natural response, as well as it should be, because God was holy, and prior to the new covenant, men were not. And so Israel was reminded of this when they saw things like uh, uh, Uzzah, Uzzah, however you want to call the guy's name. Many of you know the story, some of you don't. He reached out to stop the Ark of the Covenant from perhaps crashing to the ground. He carelessly touched it, and God struck him dead on the spot, because you don't get careless with God's holiness. When Isaiah saw Yahweh, when he saw God in Isaiah 6, what was his response? Woe is me. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to be destroyed because I've seen God and he's holy and I'm not. And so there's that fear. Whenever men in Scripture even encountered angels and they had a sense of the, of the heavenly presence before them, fear was their response because they knew there was a problem. They knew God's holy and I'm not. But that is an old covenant mentality. And so we can tell Jesus... You know, things are good, but I know that I've not done this and this and this. And You know what I mean? I mean? Can anybody somewhat relate to that? I mean, even as I was sitting down envisioning this, and I was asking myself, how would I respond if Jesus said, how are you? My mind instantly went to the areas where I'm not like Jesus. And guess what? There was a lot of them. And then I realized, man. I'm preaching to myself first and foremost before I can try to preach this to anyone else. But life in this new covenant, life in this new covenant that Jesus purchased with his blood is radically different from that. And we've got to see that this morning. We try to bring in the rules and the methods that undergirded the old covenant. And all it does is deprive us of the joy that's found in Christ in this new covenant that he has purchased for us where now we are spotless. We're free of sin. We're free of blame. We're free of guilt. We're, we're free from all of that. Now, does that mean we're sinlessly perfect? No. I'm not. Can't speak for you, but I'm going to assume that you're probably not either. 
But it means that God no longer relates to us on the basis of what we do, on the basis of what we don't do, on the basis of the way that we feel and think, etc. But rather, God now deals with us on the basis of the new heart, this new creation that he has placed within us that according to him is created spotless, holy, because we are joined to Christ. But we forget that, don't we? Daily, we forget that. And I'm convinced, I've come to the conclusion that the fundamental problem of the human race, particularly as it relates to God's people, is our innate ability to take what God has told us and either ignore it, forget it, or discard it is useless. We take what God tells us and says, and we say, ah, just, I don't really believe that, God. See, the fact is that our biggest problem, my biggest problem, your biggest problem, the biggest problem of the unbelieving world, all boils down to not believing what God has said. You think about it. If sin is a choice, which it is, if sin is something that we willingly do, even as believers, because we can get kind of stupid like that. If sin is something that we voluntarily do, and sin is compelled by our decisions, and decisions are driven by values, and values are driven by what we believe, then essentially, when we sin, when we do something that goes in opposition to God's perfect, holy character, then essentially what we're saying is, I'm sorry, God, but I don't believe you. I know that you've said that this isn't best for me, that this isn't good for me, that this is what you have for me, but I don't believe you. Now, we wouldn't say that, I don't think, but our actions show that. Because we know, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to do this. Don't do this. This, this isn't what I've got for you. This isn't, this isn't my plan for you. Our response is, I disagree. I think that I'm actually better off doing this. I know that you've told me that it's better for me not to, but I don't believe you, God. That's what's indicated in our actions. We saw this arrogant foolishness on display all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Don't eat this fruit. If you do, you're going to die. I don't believe you, God. I think it looks good. I think that I know what's best for me. We saw it on display when... uh. When Moses led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and he's on a mountain communicating with God, God is writing down his law, and even as God is doing that, what is Israel doing? They're down in the valley, pulling together all their jewelry, creating this golden calf, and saying, look, it's the God that brought us out of Egypt. We're going to worship this. I don't care what you say, God. I don't believe you. I think that this is best for me. We saw when Israel demanded a king. Sorry, God, I know that, you know, you kind of rule us, but these other nations, they're ruled by man. And I think that that's a better way. I think that what they've got is better than what we've got. I don't believe you, God, that this is best for us, so will you give us a king? Come on, God, we know what's best for us. We don't believe that you do. We saw it when the Pharisees were confronted with the reality that the problem, that the heart of the problem was the problem of their heart. Jesus said, come on, guys, you've got a fundamental sin issue, and you're spiritually dead, and I've come to bring life. I don't buy it, Jesus. We don't need that. God gave Moses the law. We follow the law. We live by the law. We don't need you. We don't believe you. Why don't you just go somewhere and die already? But it's the same with us, isn't it? The Holy Spirit says, don't take this job, or take this job. 
You don't need this house. You do need this house. You don't need... And we want to argue. I'm sorry, God. I know what you're telling me, but I don't believe you. Disbelief in God is really the root of almost any issue we have in this life. And the Colossians weren't immune to it either. By way of refresher, as we're going through this book of Colossians, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae that was found up by a man named Epaphras who himself was converted in Ephesus through the ministry of Paul. Well, now he's gone back to Paul and saying, Paul, they've taken the gospel and they're not wanting to believe the purity of it anymore. They're wanting to add some things to it. Paul, they're wanting us... We don't know the exact nature of the conflict, but we do know that there was at least an individual, perhaps a group of individuals, that were saying that what Jesus did was not enough to make things right between you and God. And so Jesus is good, but, man, there's some laws that we need to keep. Uh, Jesus is good, but there are laws we need to keep in. Maybe we need to start worshiping angels, you know, some other heavenly divine beings. Uh, what Jesus did is good, but we need to do this, and we need to do this, and, and we need to abstain from certain things, because when we go without these things, then, then that creates this closeness to God, and so we're, we're going to abstain from these various foods and beverages. Uh, and then while we're doing that, you know what? We also believe that while Jesus is good and everything, and, and, and we need Jesus, there's also another, a higher plane of knowledge that, that surpasses Jesus, and we need to strive for that, because Jesus is good, but Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't everything. And so the, the root issue is the same. The belief of the Colossians was that, well, maybe Jesus isn't sufficient. Maybe what he did isn't enough to make God happy with me. And so Paul is writing this letter as a response to challenge that. Instead of a grace-based gospel, what was being purported now in Colossae was a gospel that was a little bit of grace and a little bit of works. It's a little bit of what Jesus did, a little bit of what I did. And together, Jesus doing his part and me doing my part, God's now happy with me. And Paul said, no, absolutely not. Jesus is enough. Jesus is everything. And so the question for us is this. As we go through this letter that Paul was writing thousands of years ago to this church that was struggling to maintain the purity of the gospel, Paul was confronting them with their lack of belief that Jesus truly was enough. The question for us is, do we believe this? Do we really believe that Jesus is enough to make things absolutely perfect between us and God? And so that's what we're going to look at in the time we have this morning. Do we really believe this? Because here's the thing. Many of us have grown up in churches where the key is to go to a church and then have the pastor go through God's word and lay bare every sin that everyone here is struggling with, because we're all struggling, bring you under the full weight of the guilt and condemnation of not being perfect, create an action list for you to do so that you can go home and start doing these things or not doing these things so that at the end of the week, ta-da, God's happy with you. Until you show back up the following Sunday and dag on it, now it's something else. God's not happy, but I have a means of making him happy, so I'm going to do this, and God's happy until the following Sunday. Guess what? It's something else. Because until you are absolutely perfect, there is always going to be something that you already know in your life that you are struggling with. And so it's just kind of weird to spend the majority of our time talking about things that you already know are wrong and telling you what's wrong. Don't do it. As though saying stop could automatically give you the power and the desire to stop. What if the purpose of our coming together is not so much in seeing where it is that we still struggle, but actually seeing where it is that Christ succeeded for us? 
What if the key to Christianity isn't what we do so much as in what we know? What if it's about what Christ has done rather than anything we could possibly hope to do apart from Christ? What if the key to transformed behavior is actually transformed thinking? Shouldn't we start here then? Or here? Rather than just figuring out, well, what do I need to do? What do I have to do to make God happy? What do I have to do to go to bed thinking that God's pleased with me? Here's why this matters. What we believe drives the way we act. Everything that you do is a reflection of what you believe about what it is you're doing. If you're going to the gym, it's because you believe, hey, if I exercise, I can prolong my life, have more energy, and have a better quality of life. Or if you want to go to the drive-thru, and I'm, I'm on both ends of this, I'm still preaching at me, okay? <laughs> you go through the drive-thru and you believe, man, that Whopper Junior with cheese, with extra onion, that's going to make me feel really good. And so you believe that it's better for you and that everything that we do is driven by what we believe. We know this to be true. And so are we going to believe what it is that God clearly tells us in his word? Because given the option between believing what you think and feel and know or believing what God has said, which one do you think is the better source of truth? What God has said. And so we're going to look into that. And there's so much, so much gold in this text. This is one of those messages I'm like, I've only got four verses. And I start getting to them and I'm like, oh my goodness, I have all four verses. And so clearly we're not going to mine everything out of this text this week. We're not going to do it next week. In our community groups, we may go a little bit deeper. And so I'm just saying that we're not exhausting this thing. So feel free to dive in even deeper at home with your friends in a discipleship group, however that looks like for you. So let's get to work. That's a long introduction. What time is it? 10.53? All right, 50 more minutes and we're out of here. I'm not laughing. All right, let's pick it up in verse 19, kind of dovetailing off of last week. For in him, talking about Jesus, Paul says, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and not just to dwell, but through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the first thing that we need to realize this morning is this. The first thing that I wish I could just drive deep into my own mind, but also in yours, is this. Jesus was pleased to reconcile us to himself. Paul said, not only did the fullness of God dwell within Christ, but this same fullness, the, the Godhead itself, was pleased. And let me just stop here and, and offer a caveat. The more time you spend trying to understand the Trinity, if you're anything like me, the more confused you become. Because in my mind, it was always Jesus reconciles us to the Father. And that's true. But it's also true that Jesus reconciles us to himself. Because even though the Son is not the Father, both are God. And so we can't have this mindset that, that God the Father is very angry with this, but Jesus is very happy with this, and so he's going to you know, put us behind him and, and say, well, Dad, you can't, because I mean, there is no conflict amidst the Trinity. There is no perfect community. There is no better unity than what is found in the Trinity. And so Jesus wasn't acting for our good so that he could protect us against his Father. Jesus was acting for our good so that he could protect us against himself because Jesus is God, and God is holy. And Paul tells us that the fullness of God pleased to dwell within Christ and through Christ to reconcile to Christ all things. And so Jesus was pleased to reconcile us to himself as well as to his Father, as well as to the Holy Spirit because they are all God. And when that makes perfect sense, please let me know because you need to teach me 
how to understand all of that. How many of you here have siblings that you fought with when you were younger? All right, so I had five siblings. I had two older than me, three younger than me. I had my fair share of who I wanted to fight with. Some decisions were better than others. But when you're fighting with your brother or your sister, what is the worst thing imaginable that your parents can make you do afterwards? Hug them. Kiss them. Oh my goodness. You'd think that I was kissing a bowl of acid. Tell your brother you're so... And I do this to Uriah and Gracie because now I can and it's awesome. But as a kid, yeah, I'm a little, a little cruel. As a kid, the worst thing possible was that forced reconciliation. It was that you're going to hear, I'm sorry. You're going to feel a hug. I'm going to make this kiss as spitty as possible so that you're really paying for this. But was there any true reconciliation? No. You were simply going through the steps that your parents were making you do so that you could make your parents happy so that you wouldn't get into too much trouble for fighting with your sibling. That is a forced reconciliation. And I want us to know this morning that Jesus' act of reconciliation was anything but forced. He was pleased to do it. He wasn't made to do it. Reconciliation's kind of a churchy word, isn't it? I mean, what does it even mean? Reconciliation at its core simply means a restoration of harmony. It is it's a re- recreating peace. And so things are good and then things get bad. Reconciliation is restoring that relationship to that state where things were good. Ever balance your checkbook and you find out that what you think you have and what you really have are two different things? And so you spend a lot of time crunching the numbers trying to figure out, okay, well, who made the mistake? I made the mistake. You're reconciling your numbers. You're making things be the way that they're supposed to be. Reconcilia- reconciliation is when, when your mom makes you hug your brother or your sister because you're fighting, so you kiss and make up. It's, it's when the sovereign king of the universe lowers the gun that he had raised against you in response to your rebellion against him. It's God erasing the sin that was wedged in between us, once again restoring us to that state of union and fellowship, relating to us as though we'd never sinned. And how is that possible? Because Israel spent, I don't know how many years, working their rears off, if I can say that, trying to make a God relate to them as though they were perfect. Some of them thought they were doing it. Obviously they weren't, or there'd be no need for a Messiah. And so how is it now, if God's chosen people worked for thousands of years trying to maintain a state of perfection between them and God, to restore between them and God the union that they once had that was lost in the garden, how is it now that Jesus is doing this? How is this reconciliation possible? Is God just dismissively saying, you know what, you tried, but obviously you're not going to succeed, so I'm just going to lower my standards, everybody's in, everything's hunky-dory. Do you think that God just looks at our sin and says, well, I know you tried your best and everything's okay? No. What does Paul tell us? Paul tells us that the reconciliation of all things on earth, in heaven, this righting of the wrong that even now we're still experiencing on this earth, this making of peace was by the blood of his cross. So there's no, there's no free pass. There's no get out of jail free card. God can't simply dismiss our sin. And so if we are unable to make the payment for our sin that God demands of us to be reconciled to us, if we can't make this payment and God wants this reconciliation, if Jesus is pleased for this reconciliation, then how is it possible? By the suffering 
the separation from God and the death of the Son of God on the cross at the hands of his own Father. God doesn't simply say the wages of sin isn't death after all. I take it back, I was wrong. See, was, was forgiveness free for us? Absolutely. But it cost Jesus everything. He was pleased to do it. And with that, Paul wraps up what some theologians have called the great hymn of Colossians. Some of them believe that verses 15 through 20, it's all Christ-centered. They believe that it may have been Paul echoing a very early Christian hymn. Because Paul says, I'll just read it for you. Talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This has all been very Christ-centered, but now Paul begins to address the Colossians. He begins to address us. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, now let's stop there for a second. Let's chew on this. It's not as though Jesus died on the cross as a way of saying, my bad. It's not as though Jesus owed us and therefore died for us. It's not as though we were perfectly good people, but for some reason we needed a way into heaven, and so Jesus, seeing our awesomeness, said, Oh, oh, I know. I'll create a way. It's not as though we as a human race were, were coming together and, and just worshiping God and crying out to God for some means of rescue. How does Paul describe us? He said, alienated, separated from God. What separated us from God? Sin. Who made us sin? We made us sin. And so this reconciliation isn't between a group of people that are desperately striving to make things right with God. This is a group of people who were separated from God and perfectly content, content in being there. We were hostile in mind. We're not thinking to ourselves, oh man, man, I messed up, but God is good, and so I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to, trying to make things right. That's not who we are prior to the grace of God. We're enemies of God doing evil deeds. It's not as though we truly, genuinely had this authentic, biblical desire to right things between us and God. Now, there is a mistaken concept that some people latch onto that maybe that's the way that we're saved. And so I'm not saying that there aren't schools of thought that teach that the harder you work, the better things are between you and God. What I'm saying, though, is even that is a means of self-preservation. It's a means of saving yourself apart from what God has revealed in terms of your need for a Savior. And so Jesus didn't die for us because he owed us, because he had done something wrong to us. We were the ones. We were the ones who had caused our alienation, who had embraced our sin, and were striving as hard as we could to be rebels against God. A few weeks ago, we talked about Paul's experience. That was Paul. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus hit him with a lightning bolt, figuratively speaking. And Paul's response is, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? I mean, it takes an act of God to change a sinner's heart. Don't ever think that Jesus rescued you because of your awesomeness. It doesn't work that way. And you who were once alienated in a hostile mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciliation is a done deal. Or to put it like this, the cross worked. 
The resurrection is proof of that. Jesus' act of reconciliation is a done deal. There's no remote possibility that Jesus failed to accomplish what he went to the cross to accomplish, which was what? The salvation of his people. They will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How does he do that? By bearing them in his own body, so that we can be forgiven, so that the legal demands placed against us were nailed to the cross. So that now when God sees us, he doesn't see sinner, he sees saint. Jesus paid it for us. We are reconciled. Paul isn't saying reconciliation's coming as long as you try hard. Paul isn't saying that reconciliation is something to be attained if you do really, really, really good. Paul is saying that reconciliation was done at the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. He doesn't say that reconciliation comes and goes dependent upon your ability to keep things right between you and God, which a lot of people believe. I mean, think about it. You go to a church service and they say, hey, look, you're not reading your Bible. You're not reading your Bible? You're disobeying God. You're disobeying God? You're breaking fellowship with God. You're breaking fellowship with God. There's this gulf between you. Reconciliation's gone, and so why don't you come to the altar? We'll do 20 verses of just as I am, just to give everyone time to get here, so that through your contrition, you can once again have reconciliation. Is that what Paul is teaching? See, we need to be, I know this is kind of funny, but we've been there. I'd still be there, and sometimes I'm still there. Right, I'll be honest with you. When I do something that I know I shouldn't have, shame and guilt set in. And there is no biblical grounds for me to ever feel shame and guilt. It was nailed to the cross. Does that mean I embrace my failure? No. But it means that I realize there is no condemnation coming down from God. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Reconciliation is a done deal. To say you're out of fellowship with God comes dangerously close to calling God a liar. It really is. Because he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. God's not going anywhere. At best, we can take our eyes off of God. We've not gone anywhere. Reconciliation was done at the cross, and if you think you can undo what Jesus did, I can't help you. So if Jesus didn't suffer on the cross to right a wrong against us, if Jesus didn't suffer on the cross because of our awesomeness and his desire to spend eternity with us, why would he make reconciliation on the cross? And Paul tells us, it was in order to present you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Jesus died on the cross in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Think about that while I conveniently drink some water. That was supposed to be funny. Paul said that Jesus didn't do this in order to make you a little bit better presentable. Paul didn't say Jesus did this to create a system where you can perhaps make yourself holy and blameless depending upon what you do with it. Paul doesn't say Jesus made this way that now if you choose to do this, then this happens. There's no room for that in the text. Paul says that Jesus reconciled you to himself on the cross in order to present you holy and blameless before him. If you look at the verb tense in the Greek, it's a done deal. I mean, can I just stop right there? Don't answer that. <laughs> so, I wonder what happens if we could truly see that through the Son, not because of ourselves, but through the Son, that God truly sees us as holy and blameless. 
if you really grasped that, if you truly believed, even as you're about to do that thing that you know is not best for you, when you realize that even if you do that, that God still loves you, that he still accepts you, that there is no blame, there is no shame, there is no guilt, I would dare say that you would lose absolutely all desire to do that thing. Not because you're scared of making God angry, but because you love Jesus so much, the thought of rebelling against him just doesn't even appeal to you anymore. Failure to remember who we are in Christ opens the door not simply to losing our joy, but it impedes our ability to live out the inner life of Christ that has been placed within us. Our struggle with sin has always been the result of an identity disorder. I mean, think about it. We forget who we are, and it makes it easy for us to act in a way that we not really are. Paul says, well, curse this body of flesh. I know I shouldn't do it, but I still do it. Help me, help me figure this thing out. And we can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, can't we? Because what did the serpent tempt Eve with? He said, Eve, if you eat this, you'll be what? Like God. But if you remember what Moses said as he's penned in Genesis chapter 1 or chapter 2, we see that God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them, quoting King James for you, male and female created he them. So God created Adam and Eve in his image. Satan's temptation to Eve was, if you tell God that you don't believe him and act in a way that shows it, then in doing so, you can be like God. When her response should have been, God already made me to be like God. He made me in his image. Do you really think that rebelling against God is going to improve that? But she believed that, didn't she? Because she forgot her true identity. Imagine how different things would have been if Adam had been behind her saying, Eve, you don't need to do that to be like God. You are as much like God as God wants you to be. Paul is doing that very thing for the Colossians. He's reminding them as they're struggling with whether or not they truly are okay with God, he's struggling to remind them of the fact that they are blameless, holy, and pure. And as you might guess, universalists love this passage. Because they'll take it and say, a universalism essentially teaches that all, all creation is saved. Regardless of one's faith in Christ, regardless of anything, ultimately, all of creation will be saved. I'll be honest with you, I wish that were true. I mean, if you can sit there and say that you wish that people were in, were in hell for eternity, there's something a little not right there. And so I wish, there's a very large part of me that wishes that universalism was true. But what they do is they take this passage and they say, look, Jesus reconciled to himself all things, on earth, in heaven, they forget the fact that Paul doesn't include under the earth as he has elsewhere in Scripture. They say that if Jesus reconciled all things to himself, making peace by his blood, all things are created pure and blameless, then voila, everyone's saved. But Paul's not teaching that. This is what Paul says. He says, you who are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, are now reconciled. You're presented holy and blameless above reproach before him if. That's a huge if. Paul already puts a qualifier on this. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's a big if. Let me explain it to you this way. And I know that time is fleeting from us, but 
think back on Tuesday, someday last week, uh, I took you right over Sugar Hollow Reservoir. Any of you been there? Well, more specifically, we went kind of behind the reservoir, and there's a beautiful mountain stream that just feeds into this thing. And there's some walking trails that you can, you know, go up the trail and, and hit different points of the stream. And so we're walking, and, and be honest with you, I was trying to wear them out so he'd go to bed early. Not very holy of me, but it made for a peaceful evening because it worked. <laughs> But we decided that we're going to incorporate a little bit of a hike because we kind of got tired with the swimming around. My water's really cold, especially on a four-year-old. And the water to my knee is like up to his neck because he's really little. But we're walking, and we reach this fork in the path. And so we can go forward down these really sketchy-looking stone stairs and then cross the stream and go back to our car, or we can follow this trail. Well, Uriah wanted to go down the steps. Well, I voted that we go down the trail. And so we went down the trail because my vote's two votes. It's like two minutes later, this trail just dead ends. And I'm like, well then, so much for my navigation ability. And Uriah's like, Dad, I told you we should have gone down the steps. Love that kid. I promise. And so we turn around and go to the steps. And he says, Dad, I want to lead the way. And he, he does this a lot. And I let him. My son's a very strong leader for his age. It's something that I want to cultivate, not eliminate. And so I let him lead the way. And of course, you know, the trail is clear as day, so he's not going to get us near as lost as what I would get us lost trying to get us out of there. And so I'm following him, and he takes us all the way back to the steps. See, Dad? I told you there were steps. I know, son. But the thing is, he's like really short, and these steps were pretty big, and I didn't know how strong they were. And so I, I go and I step down on the first one about the time that he tries to get his foot down there, and he says, I can't reach, Dad. And I said, I can step on my foot. And before the words were even out of my mouth, I mean, there was no... There was no thought process. There was no doubt. There was no speculation as to whether or not what I said was true. The boy put his foot down right on mine, and when he did, I was like, oh, my goodness. This, this is what God is trying to show us. We can either believe that Jesus is sufficient and unquestionably, unquestionably throw ourselves onto him, or we can sit back and look at what he did and say, I just don't know if that's enough. And so Paul here is not teaching that faith is something that you can lose and your ability to maintain your faith determines your ability to stay reconciled. What Paul is teaching is that simply there is no reconciliation apart from faith in the Son of God who died in your place. And so Paul said, forget the stuff that they've been teaching you. Forget about adding to the gospel. Forget about adding anything to what Christ has done in order to reconcile you to God. It's Jesus Christ. Or it's nothing. But are we willing to believe that? Are we willing to believe that our right standing with God was guaranteed by the work of His Son and not based on anything that we could possibly hope to do? Can you believe that? So as our band comes up this morning, they're going to lead us in a time of worship. We have two questions. I'll take it easy on you. Just two questions. The first one is this. Are you trusting Christ and Christ alone to be your means of reconciliation? Because it's not a question about what you did, when you were born, when the cross happened. The question is, are you in Christ? Well, how do I get there? Trust in Him as Savior. And so there's reconciliation for those who are in Christ. For those who have placed their faith solely on what Christ has done. Have you done that this morning? Is there anything worthwhile that's stopping you? If you have a question about what it means to truly trust Christ as Savior, Walt and I are going to be standing in the back during our time of response. We welcome you to come talk to us. 
If you have questions that go beyond the scope of a 30-second conversation, let us know. We'd love to do coffee with you at Mudhouse. Can't guarantee that Jesus will be there, but who knows? There's no need for anyone to leave here with questions unanswered. And so we encourage you, talk to us. My prayer for us is that all of us leave here this morning trusting only in Christ to reconcile us to God. So then my second question is, is for, for us. It's for the church. Do you really believe that God will never see you as anything other than holy, blameless, and pure? Because if you don't believe that, you're going to struggle with guilt, and you're going to struggle with shame, and you're going to struggle with trying to make things right again because you feel that you've disrupted things with God. Will you believe that reconciliation is done by Christ and not by us. So as we enter into this time of response, I encourage you to absorb, to reflect on our journey marker, our take-home, our thought for the week, which is this. Christ's redeeming work has made reconciliation our reality. Can we live in that? We can't improve upon it. We can't undo it. We can't make it better. We can't do anything better for us than what Christ has already done. That's good news that we can rest in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you so much for your son. Father, we thank you that if he were to ask us how are things with you, that we can say that, well, Jesus, I'm in you and you're in me, and and it can't be better than this. Father, I know that we struggle. Every single one of us struggles in different things in different ways. And I'm not saying that we ought not continue pursuing you not as a means of rescue, but just as a means of of being everything in our life. Father, I pray that you would let us get our identity based on what you've said about us. Father, I pray that you'd not let us view ourselves the way that we think that you view us based on the way that we view our ability to live perfectly. It's not going to happen this side of eternity. Father, bad things happen. but it's okay because we're yours and you're ours. And one day we're going to look back on this and we're going to say, oh man, I didn't understand that that's what was going on. We're going to look back and we're going to realize, oh, wow, the wisdom in that, the love in that even, and the bad stuff. So, Father, just set our eyes on Christ. This world is trivial. It's fleeting. It's not eternal. Father, help us to to prioritize your kingdom, to focus on your Son, to realize that that regardless of the bad, regardless of of our stubbornness, that your love for us hasn't changed one bit, that you love us with the fullness with which you love your own Son, that we are your children. He is our brother. Father, help us to be evangelists of that good news. Lord, help us to not be a church that's wrapped up in performance. Help us to not be a church that's wrapped up in what what we can tell people to do to make things better between them and you. The only thing that can change anything between us and you is faith in your Son. So, Father, help us to rest in the gospel. Uh, Lord, as we transition into a time of response, 
I pray that we would sing as though we believe that we are reconciled. It's in Christ that we pray this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.